Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And good news, our roundtable is back today. We're going to get reaction and analysis to President Biden's battle for the soul of the nation speech. Also, Trump versus the Department of Justice. What's at stake? The impact on the midterms and indications thus far for the midterms. Any predictions? And on the international front, we'll get some news from south of the border, from the Middle East, and the global south and geopolitical realignments. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. A federal judge will hear arguments today on former President Trump's request that an independent special master be appointed to oversee the federal investigation into his handling of classified documents. The FBI seized sensitive documents from Trump's Florida home early last month. Trump's lawyers say the appointment of a special master is necessary to ensure an independent inspection of the documents. The Justice Department says there's no justification for an outside expert because investigators have already completed their review of potentially privileged records. The government says Trump lacks legal grounds to demand the return of presidential documents because they don't belong to him. Alaska Democrat Mary Peltola has won that state's special election for its only U.S. House seat. Peltola, in a surprise win, beat Republican ex-governor and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. Peltola will become the first Alaska native to serve in the House and the first woman elected to Congress from the state. The election was to decide who would serve out the remainder of Republican Don Young's term. Young died in March. Peltola's victory is a boon for Democrats, particularly coming off better-than-expected performances in special elections around the country this year following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. A team of U.N. nuclear experts has arrived at Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors are at the plant to safeguard it from catastrophe as shelling near the area threatens the plant. The team arrived amid fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces that prompted the shutdown of one reactor. The 14-member team had been trying to get clearance from Russian forces occupying Europe's largest nuclear plant for months. Officials fear a Chernobyl-level nuclear disaster should fighting in the area damage a nuclear reactor. The UN's report on human rights abuses against ethnic minorities in China, particularly its Uyghur Muslim population, has been released after a long delay. The report says abuses committed by the Chinese state in the Xinjiang region could amount to crimes against humanity. The report also called for urgent attention from the international community to address them. Survivors say the significance of the assessment is that the weight and authority of the United Nations lends credibility to their accusations. Human rights groups have reported that up to one million Uyghurs are being held in detention camps in Xinjiang. Thousands of British rail workers are set to go on strike this month over pay, working conditions, and job security. 
The labor actions are taking place as Britain deals with Europe's worst inflation levels. More from Future Story News' Laura Macon Isherwood. The ASLEF and TSSA unions will see their members walk out on the 15th and 26th of September in the latest bout of industrial action on the railways. Nadine Ray is the organising director at the TSSA and explained why the union's members are going on strike. They just want a, a fair and decent pay increase and job security in the face of this cost of living crisis, which everyone is, is going through. And uh, they're wanting this on the back of, of three or four years of pay freeze. So we all know the cost of energy bills, fuel and food is skyrocketing, but wages are, are stuck. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Laura Makin Isherwood. September is National Hunger Awareness Month, and as Eric Tegadoff reports, activists are using the occasion to raise awareness about food insecurity in the country. Susanna Morgan, head of Oregon Food Bank, says hunger was a problem in the state before the pandemic. But in the midst of COVID-19's grip, one in five Oregonians faced food insecurity. Although numbers have gone down, she notes that more than a million residents in the state sought emergency food assistance from the Oregon Food Bank Network in 2021. Morgan says a number of factors are contributing to food insecurity right now. Driven by structural problems in wages, access to affordable housing, access to affordable health care, access to education, and exacerbated by inflation and high costs of fuel, food, and other necessities. Morgan says federal assistance to address hunger during the pandemic is slowly decreasing, but adds that the state hasn't reached a cliff that would drive even larger numbers of families into a precarious position. On Wednesday, Morgan held her State of Hunger address to kick off the month. I'm Eric Tegadoff. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our weekly roundtable is back. There's been a lot going on. Um, we are going to start our discussion with a Biden speech, the battle for the soul of the nation. Uh, but first, I'd like to welcome back our panelists. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Laura Carlson. Uh, Laura, welcome. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be back. Yeah, really good. Really good to hear you. I'm just, we started a little bit late, so I'm kind of skipping through our intros, if that's okay, the full intro. So my apologies for that. (laughs) Okay, I'd like to welcome uh, Jackie Goldberg. Jackie, welcome. Thanks for inviting me again. I missed being here. Thanks. Yeah, we have missed all of you. It's just just been terrible. And I'd like to welcome back Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All righty. So we're going to first let's go to a clip um, with some of the highlights uh, from uh, Biden's battle for the soul of the nation speech. Then we'll get your reaction and analysis. Let's go to that clip now. Equality and democracy are under assault. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. So tonight I've come to this place where it all began to speak as plainly as I can to the nation about the threats we face, about the power we have in our own hands to meet these threats. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations 
of our republic. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know, because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. They tried everything last time to nullify the votes of 81 million people. This time, they're determined to succeed in thwarting the will of the people. We are not powerless in the face of these threats. We are not bystanders in this ongoing attack on democracy. This is a nation that respects free and fair elections. We honor the will of the people. We do not deny it. Blind loyalty to a single leader and a willingness to engage in political violence is fatal to democracy. So I want to say this plain and simple. There is no place for political violence in America, period. None, ever. I believe in the give and take of politics, in disagreement and debate and dissent. We're a big, complicated country. But democracy endures only if we, the people, respect the guardrails of the republic. Only if we, the people, accept the results of free and fair elections. Only if we, the people, see politics not as total war, but mediation of our differences. You can't love your country only when you win. The cynics and the critics tell us nothing can get done, but they're wrong. There is not a single thing America cannot do, not a single thing beyond our capacity if we do it together. The darkness of Charlottesville, of COVID, of gun violence, of insurrection, we can see the light. Light is now visible. Light that will guide us forward. The MAGA Republicans believe that for them to succeed, everyone else has to fail. They believe America, not like I believe about America. I believe America is big enough for all of us to succeed. And that is the nation we're building, a nation where no one is left behind. We can't afford to have, leave anyone on the sidelines. We need everyone to do their part. So speak up, speak out, get engaged, vote, vote, vote. We just need to remember who we are. We are the United States of America, the United States of America. And may God protect our nation and may God protect all those who stand watch over our democracy. All righty. So there you go. Some highlights uh, from that speech. And uh, that is a clip from the was put together by, from the Washington Post. Uh, Laura Carlson, uh, we're going to start with you. A lot of people are saying, well, it was quite remarkable that you had to have a president of the United States making a speech like this. And this is at a time that the nation is particularly uh, divided. The majority of people still uh, saying the nation is going in the wrong direction. A, a Quinnipiac University poll says 67% um, uh, uh, think that the U.S. is going in danger of collapse, okay? 
that's like a nine point increase from January. So a lot of people very, very worried about the, and I'll put democracy in quotes as it is practiced in the United States in danger. Give us your reaction to the speech and any analysis you might have about the wider implications of all of this. Laura Carlson. Thanks, Margaret. You know, I thought it was a strong speech and that it actually said what needed to be said. What is happening is not normal. And what we're seeing is a form of extremism, including political violence. You know, if we're serious about ethics and politics, we have to have a responsibility to look at the speech in the terms of its content, uh, face value. Yes, it's an attack on Trump and MAGA Republicans, but more than that, it is a warning, and it's a warning that resonates with a growing number, as you cited in the poll, of U.S. citizens, including people in the center and including people in the Republican Party. Is there a political calculus to it in terms of elections coming up? Of course there is, but I think that there really is a genuine concern and that many people share it that uh, it's time to look at what's really happening. So what are some of the specific threats that he cites here in the speech? He talks about democracy and equality being under assault, that what is going on is threatening the foundations of our country. And of course, he's doing this at a moment when there's an actual crime being investigated, the crime of stealing classified documents that were found in Mar-a-Lago that we'll probably talk about a little bit later. He's calling out Trump specifically, uh, the Republican Party being dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans. And this comes at a moment when there's a possibility that some shows, polls are showing that Trump could become a liability. At the same time, it's true that uh, he's the front runner for the Republican Party. So there may, it may not be quite correct to say that the majority of public Republicans do not share these points of view. Some of the most important points that he made are taking the country backwards. And he mentioned things that are very important to large sectors of the US population, that we could go back to a time when we're already losing abortion rights which happens to be a major uh, political issue for the elections coming up, according to the polls and tracking how especially women will vote and even the possibility of losing the right to choose contraception, to marry people who you love. Those are uh, principles that have become part of um, the US political culture and that are important to many, many people. I think also the point about political violence is really important, again, Going to the poll, you cited the threat of instability and that of stability in politics degenerating into what we saw on January 6th is one that really concerns a lot of people. The fact that now FBI agents are getting death threats, which he also mentioned, the phrase that he used has used before of a dagger at the throat of democracy is important. You know, the failure to stop the peaceful transfer, transfer of power, the way that uh, the, the social networks are now talking about civil war. I think that this is not a path that most people in the United States would like to see the country follow and that threat and not just threat, but the reality of political violence among the forces of Donald Trump, the MAGA Republicans, the uh, 
the I think that it's it's really becoming increasingly correct to use the term fascist forces in the United States is is far more extreme than where most people would like to go. So we're seeing that being called out as a rejection of this extreme ideology. And then this effort to to differentiate between the election between the Republicans, excuse me, which is uh, important. Although, unfortunately, as I say, it doesn't seem to be the reality as more and more even center Republicans are following what they consider to be a winning formula in elections, which is the extremism led by Donald Trump. In terms of, of a radical analysis, though, we also have to say that it's true that this is a speech that whitewashes the deeper structural crisis in the United States, the inequalities, the crisis of the economic model for so many people in the country, and the superficiality of a representative democracy. Biden says that there's been a violation of the fundamental freedom, which is the freedom to vote. Well, freedom to vote is really not the fundamental freedom for most people. How about the freedom not to be shot in your own bed by cops, which happened yet again in Columbus, Ohio? How about the freedom to eat? How about the freedom to have a, a roof over your head? You know, there's a whole series of freedoms that are far more fundamental for human life uh, than voting is, and that are areas in which the United States and its capitalist model has, has consistently failed. Also calling out the United States, talking about the United States as a beacon to the world, an ideal, that's our soul. You know, this is language that ignores the imperialism and what it's done to third world countries. It ignores the fact that even with the limited climate action policies in the infrastructure bill, it's a nation that's destroying the planet and then he ends up, of course, with all this talk about God bless you and, and a complete violation of principles of the separation of state, church and state, and the diversity of religious views and of cultures that exist within, within the country, as well as the fact that the foreign policy has essentially, has essentially followed the same route. So we have to take that with more than a grain of salt from a, from a deeper perspective and critique of the United States model, but right now there is a violent extremist threat to society. It was time to name it. He named it, and that's exactly what he did in this speech. Right, thank you, Laura Carlson. And uh, Jackie Goldberg, uh, you know, some are saying that for the, the Democrats, um, Biden has gone up a bit, you know, in the polls and independents um, are, are now leaning, independent women, by the way, not independent men, are leaning uh, Democrat up by I, nine points. I can't remember from uh, just a few months ago from March or something like that. Um, so... The strategy, it seems, of the Democrats putting the midterms uh, kind of referendum on Trump uh, seems to be, it's risky, but it seems to be working for them. And then, of course, Trump loves all of the attention. And then on the other hand, you see some Republicans getting a bit nervous about uh, Trump perhaps being a liability. Um, Jackie Goldberg, your reaction, first of all, to the need for the speech, the speech itself, and the wider implications. Jackie Goldberg. Well, of course, I think the need for the speech is enormous, and I think it needs to be repeated in different ways for quite a 
quite a bit of time during this election season. Because I think a lot of Americans, I was surprised when 21% put democracy's threats as the first thing that they're worried about. I was surprised by that, but I shouldn't have been because I think the January 6th hearings and this whole business of having documents that are government documents, not Trump's documents in his home, where people walk through and some hidden in his desk, those are things which I think make some people very nervous about our nation's national security. And I think that when we're talking about independence, it's independent women, you're right, because the independent white men are still voting with the white supremacists. At least that's what some of the polling I've seen indicates. So where are we with this speech? Well, I think one of the most interesting things about the speech was how he handled the heckler. You know, Trump said in one of his early campaign speeches running for office in 2016, when someone heckled him, that he would pay for the defense of people who would beat the crap out of that guy. To watch Biden stand up and say, this man has a right to be outrageous because this is a democracy and that's the difference. I think there are a lot of people in America for whom that line may have been the most important line in the speech because that line showed the distinct difference between Biden and Trump and democracy and fascism. You don't allow any dissent. You don't allow any disagreement. You don't allow a heckler to express their views. You don't allow outrage by people who don't agree with you in any kind of neo or semi or complete fascist society, which the white supremacists are certainly trying to seek to put into America. I really was stunned, I have to say, by how he did that. And he did it without thinking about it, because it is what we believe, isn't it? It is what we believe. We believe you have a right to be wrong. You have a right to be outrageous. You have all those rights. Uh, but they are certainly under assault as we speak. I also think it was an important speech, uh, but I was disappointed that none of the three major networks carried the speech live. You know, on a Thursday night in the summer, you're not going to get a lot of people tuning in uh, to uh, CNN or anywhere else where you could hear the speech live. Um, and I, and I'm, I, I think that was a big mistake on their part. I think they missed an opportunity to be on the side of democracy in this fight as a part of the media in this country. And they should be criticized soundly. And I know I will write my three letters to them, which I write frequently, telling them that because that was a bad mistake for America. Everyone should have been invited to this party. I also think it was important for him to say to America that you're either with democracy or you're against it. There is no middle ground about this. And for him to make that clear, I think, was really a good line in the speech, too. Uh, so I think on the whole, I agree all the criticisms of Laura. He could have gone into other issues. He, I think he should have mentioned the economy, which is certainly the next thing in line uh, and inflation, the next thing in line in this speech. But the White House chose intentionally not to do that. This speech was not about the economy. This speech was only to be about democracy. So I think that uh, the criticisms of not mentioning that we have, you know, such extreme poverty in the richest nation in the world, that we have all of the various issues of the depth and the depth and the deep, continuous, ongoing depth of racism and white supremacy is a major part of every part of this election. But I do also think it was important for him to have made it very clear 
that you cannot be pro-insurrectionist and pro-democracy. I thought that was another great line. You can't, you can't do it. You can't just say, I think that those guys were patriots that, that, that harmed, killed, attacked, tried to overturn this country's free and fair elections and the transfer of power peacefully, tried to undermine this country's basic fundamental democracy that those are patriots, you can't believe that and believe in democracy. I think that was a pretty good line, too. Yeah, and, and, and Jackie, underscoring your point about the economy, I mean, if you look at the Friday jobs uh, report, um, it's, it's up um, despite uh, inflation, and the reports are that for 20 consecutive months now, um, there have been job growth, although unemployment slipped slightly to 37 uh, percent, uh, but they're pretty much saying that the economy has recovered from more than 20 million jobs that were lost during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, he really didn't, well, he wouldn't have known that because he made the speech before these numbers came out, but then it, it, he could have referred to 19 consecutive months. And of course, we all know that that's uneven because there are a lot of uh, uh, our communities that uh, certainly those numbers don't pan out for us. But right. Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, your thoughts here. I mean, I didn't hear the words semi-fascist. Did I miss it in, um, in Biden's speech? He had uh, used such uh, language before. And uh, Jackie Goldberg is abs absolutely right. I mean, it's shameful uh, what we call the, the mainstream media industrial complex really showed their hand by not even bothering uh, to, to carry this speech, given the divisions that are going on in the nation. But uh, Dr. Horn, uh, your thoughts on it. Abortion, by the way, wasn't mentioned either, Dr. Horn. Well, abortion was not mentioned, but he mentioned the right to privacy and other illusions around that, that of course feed in to the pro-choice question. And I should say at this point that uh, that question, the Dobbs decision uh, ruling out the reproductive freedom from women, obviously has been a major electoral issue uh, since that decision was rendered. It'll be a major electoral issue in November. And I would like to, at this point, give a shout out to the Margaret Atwood novel now turned into a, a blockbuster uh, dramatic series that you can find in, in different platforms, I'm speaking of Handmaid's Tale, which I think is very powerful, not least in its betrayal of a kind of gender apartheid, in its betrayal of uh, what happens when there is a circumscribing of women's reproductive freedom. And it may be the 21st century version of Uncle Tom's Cabin, the anti-slavery novel of the 19th century, which generated so much momentum to defeat slavery in the United States. Uh, perhaps Handmaid's Tale will be an equivalent. Now, obviously, he did not mention uh, even his term semi-fascism, and that's a weakness, but it's not just a weakness of Mr. Biden alone. I mean, unless you listen to Pacifica on a regular basis, you will rarely hear invoke the term fascism before Mr. Biden invoked the term. Uh, which is quite remarkable and quite disturbing. And likewise, I don't think you can begin to talk about fascism, as has already been alluded to, without invoking this nation's long history of anti-Black racism, going back to slavery and continuing uh, with Jim Crow. And part of the problem, it seems to me, 
is that this Trump phenomenon is treated like a tree without roots. There's no historical analysis of how we reached this point. And part of the problem is the problem of historians themselves, who you may be surprised to know really oftentimes steer clear of teasing out the contemporary repercussions of their historical research. You know, Margaret, that I've been doing these interviews on KPFK uh, on Saturdays at 11 a.m., oftentimes with historians. And it's quite shocking uh, how oftentimes they refuse to tease out the implications of their research. And I think that they've been intimidated by the right wing. They've been intimidated by the negative reaction to the 1619 Project of Nicole Hannah-Jones, a journalist who did precisely that. She tried to connect the past to the present. And not only did Mr. Trump react negatively with the 1776 Commission, but many mainstream and liberal historians who now consider themselves to be part of this anti-fascist front, they excoriated her as well. And so unless we have some sort of historical understanding of how we reach this point, um, we'll be like the patient who goes to the doctor and has lung cancer, but there's no acknowledgement of smoking three packs of cigarettes a day for 30 years. And that's the essence and the crux of the dilemma we now face. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, um, President Biden did make a point. He really emphasized uh, the point of violence and, and the violent threat. And so, you know, one wonders also, what does he know that the rest of us don't yet know? <laughs> Anyhow, what we're going to do, thank you for uh, all of our panelists, we're going to take a short station break. And when we return, well, the raid of um, Donald Trump's private club and um, Trump versus the Department of Justice, we're going to dig into that. You won't want to miss it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. by Souls of Mischief. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth on KPFK 90.7 FM. It is our weekly roundtable. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. You can subscribe for a free podcast. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Just it's a free app. Just go to SoundCloud and look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Florida. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Australia. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are 
Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. Uh, now, on August 8th, uh, 2022, um, Donald Trump's private club in Florida estate at Mar-a-Lago was raided by the Department of Justice in what is now known to have been a year-long FBI investigation leading up to the raid. The FBI search affidavit, which is heavily redacted, by the way, thus far reveals that uh, authorities are very concerned that Trump still had possession of top secret documents that could have compromised U.S. intelligence sources and methods. It also revealed the National Archives had recovered 184 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago um, in January of 2022, and more than 100 additional classified items were found during the search, uh, according to a court filing by federal prosecutors. Now, Trump, he's trying to get away with it. He's trying to slow the process down. Um, the U.S. District Court Judge Eileen Cannon, who, by the way, was appointed by Donald Trump, indicated uh, this past Thursday that she is seriously uh, considering temporarily barring the Justice Department investigators from uh, reviewing the material uh, seized. I mean, we, we have to see how all of this goes with this special master, um, because uh, uh, she also did not actually ask the Department of, of Justice investigators to stop uh, reviewing the documents, but there's a lot of concern that this will slow the process down. Uh, another element in all this, of course, with the midterm elections looming, let's go to a short clip uh, from Bloomberg about thoughts on the on what will happen with this investigation. Will something, charges be made before the midterms or not? Let's go to that clip right now. We did just get some breaking news here. The Department of Justice is likely to wait to pass the midterm elections to reveal any Trump charges. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Josh Wingrove to walk us through a few more of the details. Josh, over to you. So the development here is that they are running up against the, what is traditionally a 60-day clock that they wouldn't announce charges that close to an election. That would be in about uh, September 10th in and around there, that kind of range. So what our colleague Chris Stone is reporting is that we do not expect charges to come in either uh, the, the documents case that we've been hearing quite a bit about that relates, of course, to whether confidential and classified top secret documents left the White House in an unauthorized matter, and separately a probe into the, 20, uh, the actions around the January 6th uh, uh, events at the Capitol and what, if anything, Trump and people around him did to encourage that or not intervene to quell it once it started rolling off. And so those two things together, what, we're, what our colleague Chris Stone is reporting is that no, the charges will not come in the 60-day period and they won't come before, which means it won't be until after the elections that we will hear if there are charges or not. That, of course, raises the question that the potential for charges will hang over in part these midterm cycles. Yeah, actually, Jackie Goldberg, let's let's go to you first. I mean, all of this is, well, 
you could say quite remarkable, but not surprising. I mean, a lot of us know that this has been a criminal operation that's uh, that's been going on. And now you have alarm in the intelligence community that Trump has held on to, you know, some of the most highly classified uh, documents uh, here. And 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 then speaking of criminal operation, he also uh, just the same day that um, President Biden was to give his Heal America speech, if you want to look at it uh, that way, uh, to say, well, he's going to pardon everybody who was involved in January 6th. And you still have, I think it's only something like 13% of Republicans who think that January 6th was a was an insurrection. So, the, the you know, things are, are pretty much clearly set up in terms of what Trump is saying, hey, if you elect me, this is the direction uh, we're going to be going in. The criminality really will continue. Um, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts about this whole dance with uh, the Department of, of Justice and Merrick Garland, who is seems to be cautiously playing his cards and a lot of people are keeping their fingers crossed that something will come out of it and Trump won't yet again uh, get away with crimes. Jackie Goldberg. Well, I think that that the pres uh, former president uh, 45 is in big trouble in this particular case because it really has nothing to do with whether the documents are classified. The, the, the acts under which he would be charged if he gets charged at all would be under the defense, uh, sharing defense information or, or endangering defense information, which doesn't require that anything be classified at all. So we're all shocked about classified because we know that many of the secrets that he had casually uh, placed anywhere in his boxes or in his desk do have some real implications for real people who are, are spies to be candid. And naming them and finding out who they are and how we do uh, collect intelligence is a very pro big problem. I would say this. I think I, it's a good thing that he's not that that no charges could be brought before the election, because I think it would change the dynamic of who will vote. I think a lot more Trumpias, MAGAs will vote if they think he's in real trouble. Right now, he's claiming he didn't do anything wrong. I'm not in trouble. This is all political. I'm happy he's doing that. I'm very happy he's doing that because if he were uh, to tell people the real trouble that he's in, he might get more support because he gets such sympathy from his followers about him being a poor victim of everybody's conspiracies. I do think it's important, however, to understand that this is not a small issue. Um, <clears throat> it is not a small issue because he behaves as he has throughout his presidency like they are his generals, right? Remember when he talked about his yeah. generals? Okay. Well, these are his documents. No, 45, no, they're not. They're the government's documents, not your documents. And when you take documents that are not yours, here we have a word for it. We call it stealing, okay? This was not a raid. This was a proper service of a subpoena because of a failure on over a year's attempts to get these materials back from the president. This is not a raid. A raid is when you don't have permission, when you don't have good reason, when you go in and you tear things apart. This was done very carefully, very cautiously, and I think that's wise. And I also think that Merrick Garland waited so long was a shame, but I don't think it was uh, a problem in terms of the outcome. 
And I do think it's good that this is not going to be uh, resolved in terms of his being uh, uh, charged with anything until after the uh, midterm elections, because I do think it would upset what's going on right now, which I see is that people are beginning to see much more clearly who what the choices are in the elections in November. And I think as long as people understand what the choices are, uh, we'll do better than expected. Right. Yeah, thank you for that. And you're absolutely right. It, it wasn't a raid. I shouldn't have, uh, proposed, you know, uh, said it in that no, way. But, it's, but, but uh, it's what he does. It's what he does. Yeah, he tries to yeah. capture the language, create the narrative, describe That's the right. narrative in ways that make him look like a victim, another victim of another conspiracy. Oh, my God. Well, they just have so many conspiracies that even when we get past one, we have another one thrown at us. And that's his victim. I'm a victim trying to relate to people who think of themselves that way. That is his old campaign of MAGA is, is that you are victims, you white people. You are victims. You are victims of Jews. You are victims of blacks. You are victims of Latinos. You're victims of immigrants who all want what you have are going to take away from you and do to you what you've done to them. Well, he creates a lot of fear that way, and he uses language, specific language, to create those kinds of racist fears. Bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, the whole MAGA approach is to say to to white Americans that white America is in danger, and the only thing you can do to save white America is to keep being a Trumpite. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. Laura Carlson, your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, from a common sense perspective, <laughs> it would seem very hard to talk about his, for him to use this victim conspiracy, which I agree is exactly what he does, considering that they actually found what they were looking for, that they actually found exactly what the subpoena purported when the judge authorized it in his house with all these 33 boxes and 100 classified documents. And so now his attorney was forced to try to minimize this clear fact by uh, calling this something like having an overdue library book, which of course created <laughs> a lot of outrage among many different people because of the obvious differences between classified documents that belong to the government that you stole when you lost the election and in overdue library book. You know, but I think one of the things is that it's it's the scariest part of it is why did he do it? What did he have those documents in his house that belong to the government, that belong to the archives for, you know? And then the scenarios of actually using uh, inside government information as leverage against the government are really, really frightening to think about. And it's difficult to believe or to consider that the investigation would ever get to this. I suppose it's it's going to end up being always speculation in terms of the the psychology and the political calculations of Donald Trump. But um, that's really the scariest part, I think, for many of us. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Guess- 
leave it there and go on to the to the other issues because there's so much to talk about today including what's happening in the rest of the world right so let's i want wanted you to precisely be able to get to some of the south of the border stuff but first let us hear uh from dr horn and your thoughts on what is happening now with with trump and you know Lori, you're absolutely right what what was his intention what is he going to do with that stuff imagine if barack obama had kept you know, the top secrets uh, of the United States as part of his personal papers. Anyhow, uh, Dr. Horn. Well, we can only speculate what's in the documents, but to link it to what's going on overseas, there is credible speculation that there was information relevant to the security of Saudi Arabia, perhaps spies uh, close to the de facto leader, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, and in that context, consider that the Saudis gave Mr. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, $2 billion to play with uh, over objections internally. And so perhaps he was going to monetize some of these documents. Likewise, there's raw gossip concerning uh, French President Macron, and perhaps he wanted to blackmail Mr. Macron for personal monetary advantage. But it's not just this Mar-a-Lago crisis that is dogging Mr. Trump. There's the case in Fulton County, Georgia, where he's accused of various kinds of electoral transgressions. There's the case in New York City, where his accountant, Alan Weisselberg, was just nailed. There's the case in Albany with uh, Attorney General Tish James uh, coming after him. And of course, Mr. Trump has made a to-do of the fact that the prosecutors and attorneys in all three cases uh, happened to be black, which of course helps to feed this idea that he and his so-called uh, white supporters are somehow under siege. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, these crises uh, might uh, tell the tale as to whether or not we'll see Mr. Trump in an orange jumpsuit or perhaps uh, carted out of Mar-a-Lago in a straitjacket. <laughs> All righty. Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. Horn. Um, Laura Carlson, uh, let us go to you. A lot happening uh, south of the border. If you would take a, a few minutes uh, on that and then be able to get some uh, final thoughts on the international front from our other panelists as well, Laura. Thanks, Margaret. You know, there's a real tie between what's happening in other countries and what's happening in the United States in terms of seeing overall a backlash of the oligarchies, of the privileged, of the white supremacists against some of the advances and in the context of a, a crisis in the neoliberal law model. In this sense, I wanna to go to Chile where, <clears throat> excuse me, tomorrow there's a vote or excuse, on Sunday there's a vote on the new constitution. The new constitution has gone through a, a, a very long process that began with a popular uprising against, <clears throat> in many ways, against the neoliberal model because of the inequalities that it generated in the country. This led to the, is the constitutional process and now there's a very progressive pro, uh, constitution being proposed and being set before a referendum in, in Chile on, on Sunday. So far, it's not looking good for it. And one of the reasons is because they began this incredible media campaign um, saying that indigenous people were going to take over the country because there's a strong portion on indigenous rights within the constitution 
for the two million indigenous people in Chile, it would become actually one of the leaders in indigenous rights within legal structure in the world under this constitution. There's a strong uh, emphasis on gender parity and women's participation, on not privatizing the basic right to water, on labor and social and economic rights. All of this is a threat to those who have been looting the country and its natural resources, to those who have been oppressing women and people of color and indigenous people within the country. And they're, they're, they're fighting back with misinformation in the press, especially in the social media, where of course, big companies like Twitter and others are not controlling it um, at all. They say that there's the uh, false information goes viral. And as long as that sells advertising, they're totally fine with that. So everybody will be looking very closely at this vote on Sunday. The president has said that if it goes down, uh, after so many people, the vast majority, almost 80%, supported the process of a new constitution because the old constitution was created during the dictatorship. But if this constitution goes down, he's going to begin a new process all over again but it will be uh, um, a major defeat for some of the most progressive um, new legal structures that the world has seen recently. We're also seeing a backlash in the assassination attempt against Vice President Cristina Fernandez in Argentina, which only for the fact that the trigger jammed, is she alive today? And so in Latin America, which is moving left in the number of elections, in the middle of a deep crisis that's been that's been worsened by the pandemic of the neoliberal capitalist model we're seeing these more violent reactions in many ways similar to what's happening in the united states and in many ways also coordinated because there's an international right that's involved in all these different issues and then just finally very quickly i want to add because so many of our listeners are familiar with the case of the 43 disappeared students in Mexico in 2014, Ayotzinapa, that there was a major report that actually uh, defined it as a crime of the state. And so the investigations are still going forward. They still haven't found the students, but there's signs that there's a recognition on the part of the government. There's arrest orders out for members of the army that the case will progress and that the obstruction of justice that was carried out by members of the past governments has been recognized or be supported. So there's a positive, a positive point on the horizon in that case on human rights. Right, well, the struggle continues in, in Chile. They've made a, a valiant effort uh, there. So we'll have to see how that goes down. Um, Dr. Horn, we're actually gonna go to you next on this, the global south and some geopolitical realignments uh, that are happening. Dr. Horn. Well, let's take the news of the week, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, the former Soviet leader. And there was sincere mourning in the North Atlantic bloc about his passing for various reasons. Not so much in the global south, because recall that one of the things that Mr. Gorbachev did while he was in office was to pull the plug with regard to support for national liberation movements, not least in Southern Africa. Uh, it's no accident that the apartheid authorities began to negotiate with the African National Congress in South Africa precisely after the fall of the Berlin Wall, because they recognized that the ANC's ally in Moscow was now retreating. And that has handicapped 
the African National Congress government uh, to this very day. And likewise, I'm not sure if it's recognized wholly in Washington that one of the reasons why in the global South there's so much hesitation about jumping on the sanctions train with regard to Moscow is precisely because of the skepticism of this anti-Moscow crusade that uh, over the last hundred years or so has been a major talking point in US foreign policy. And in any case, with regard to the collapse of the Soviet Union, once again, uh, there's little recognition on this side of the Atlantic that the deal with China was critical with regard to encircling the Soviet Union. The Chinese then waged war on the Soviet ally in Vietnam, and of course received massive direct foreign investment uh, in return, uh, which has now created this juggernaut. And now what you see is this de facto alliance that's developing between Russia and China manifested in war games that are taking place as we speak. And in any case, uh, I find it a very uh, curious that there has been less discussion of why after Mr. Gorbachev uh, basically presides over the dissolution of the Soviet Union, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization continues, continue creeping closer to the border of Russia, which of course helps to generate this war in Ukraine. It's not enough to say that the Poles and other Eastern Europeans demanded entrance into NATO because of fear of Russia. The Poles are demanding trillions of dollars in reparations for Germany as we speak. That doesn't obligate the United States to support it. And in any case, uh, oftentimes people who make that point forget that before the uh, coming of the Soviet Union in 1919, many of these Eastern European countries depended upon Russia to protect them from what they saw as an antagonist, speaking the Muslims, the Ottoman Turks. Uh, that's certainly the case for Bulgaria. And so uh, I think that this death of Gorbachev and the hand-wringing that's taken place as a result uh, illustrates some of the weaknesses in terms of analysis of US foreign policy. Once again, not only in the mainstream, but to a certain degree on Pacifica and the left as well. Right, and Dr. Horn bringing in a perspective there from the global South and these geopolitical uh, geopolitical realignments. Um, Jackie Goldberg, you'll have a quick class word here uh, on the roundtable today. Any thoughts uh, that you might have on any of this or anything you want to uh, talk about in relation to what's happening in the Middle East, is Israel, Palestine, et cetera? Jackie. Well, I would say that the extremist uh, uh, Israeli lawmaker Itamar Ben-Gavir uh, who in, in, in public calls his Arab colleagues in the uh, uh, Knesset terrorists he want, and wants to deport all political opponents. He, he was banned. His views were so extreme in his views <clears throat> that the military banned him from compulsory military service. Today, he's ahead in the polls for mm. being prime minister. He's ahead in the, ahead in the November elections. He received the blessing of Netanyahu. And he's poised to emerge as a major force that could propel him, uh, could propel Netanyahu back to power. And that's the whole point of him. In addition to which, however, Netanyahu did have a setback. They were trying to put together a far right merger and it fell apart. So uh, there are good news and bad news with respect to Netanyahu. But there is an important November election. In addition to which, I think there's still a big fight over the uh, uh, <clears throat> attack on uh, Shireen Abu Akhez 
uh, uh, well, murder uh, and the U.S.'s inaction. Uh, the Times of Israel had a very large uh, <laughs> item today about uh, its refusal to open an independent investigation in the United States and, the, and in Israel. And, and that Al Jazeera is saying it's been four months now, no accountability, no action from the U.S. administration. Um, Shireen's niece has been taking this up. Finally, I would say that the Palestinians are trying to get Washington not to block, block its U.S. membership bid, but I don't think there's any hope for that. The, uh, the APAC, uh, the right-wing uh, so so-called support of Israel uh, PAC that spends a lot of money in political campaigns for Congress uh, is pushing very hard against Biden, uh, allowing uh, Palestinian officials to be successful in getting a full membership in the United Nations. Right. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, another fascinating roundtable. It was great to have all of you back. We're out of time, so we're going to have to go. want to thank all of our panelists, uh, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Today's show produced by me, that's Mark Prescott. I'd like to give thanks to our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, and also to our board up uh, for today. Uh, please stay tuned for Democracy Now! Uh, with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. Y'all, please remember to stay safe, and I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Bye.